Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is writer and director Jennifer Reeder. She's the filmmaker behind films such as Knives and Skin and Signature Move. She also directed the wraparound segment Holy Hell in VHS 94, which is currently streaming on Shudder. Welcome to the show! Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. We're really excited to dig into your career because both of us loved Knives and Skin. And I was really surprised at, at VHS 90, 94, if I'm going to be honest. I, lo- I really enjoyed that. Oh, thanks. I wasn't sure you could go either way. I feel like VHS 94, if I've learned anything, it's like, well, all the VHS franchise is really polarizing. I feel like even the people who hate it love to hate it. So you could have been like, I hated it and I loved <laughs> hating it, you know? 
I mean, the wraparound, the wraparound is, is anyone, consumers and makers will tell you that the wraparound is sort of like the not- notoriously the hardest thing to do in any anthology, if it, if anthologies have a wraparound. But I guess that in VHS 94, the wraparound in particular has been extremely um, polarizing. And this was maybe, you know, this is no, this is no exception. Although I have to say that, you know, and maybe we can get into this later, but Ultimately, what ended up on kind of the final screen is is a little bit different than what I had anticipated. I sort of maybe made something originally kind of too too kind of drifty and ambitious for 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 the VHS franchise. I think they like things to kind of move, and it's like more gore, more bludgeoning. Just get to mm. that, you know. And I mean, you've seen Knives and Skin. I sort of like to be like, let's let's contextualize this. Let's sort of like unpack female empowerment in this moment, you know, but, um, I'm still really happy that the whole, you know, that the whole film is doing, you know, is doing so well. And there's not just one, but, um, two writer, right. Female writer and directors involved in this. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Finally. Oops. Who said that? I'll be honest. I, I honestly, of the, the middle sections, I loved, uh, the Ratna. I loved I loved her segment yeah, so much. Incredible. Yeah, Chloe's is great. And Chloe. I don't know if you're keeping up on, on Instagram, but she's been posting the most excellent um fan art. People um oh oh my God. drawing pictures and making little sculptures of Ratma. It's so cool. That's incredible. <laughs> um but let's go back to the beginning before we talk about your incredible career. Um, how did you get into horror? Well, you know, I think from the very uh, beginning or the moment that I picked up a video camera, you know, I did a project when I was in grad school that was a kind of live action comic book about the adventures of a girl superhero named White Trash Girl, and which you can see on my Vimeo page, um, for free. And, um, it wasn't so much horror, but definitely genre. White Trash Girl's mm-hmm. weapon is her body. She has an erupting body. So from the very beginning of my life as a, you know, as a filmmaker, although at that time I was, it was, I was shooting on video, but you know, that's, that's being picky about it. I, I was interested in, you know, a a kind of body horror, a, a way that, um, the fantastical possibilities of the whole of the sort of genre sphere helped me, you know, talk about, um, talk about social issues, especially those related yeah. to, you know, to, to gender and empowerment and, and, um, and to also kind of like pick the scab off of the, of the, of the, of whatever subject I kind of wanted to, to, um, to talk about and kind of let it bleed or ooze or whatever, whatever. I mean, white trash girls <laughs> really, it's really abject and gross. And I really meant it to be that way. And, um, you know, I think that that then, even though maybe you know the films that I made became well varying levels of maybe you know grossness or oozing, but you know like horror or like you know even making something that was like adjacent to horror or thriller or at mm-hmm. least kind of leaning into the darker aspects of humanity and the human existence have always been a part of my films there and and for so many of them. 
um, lately in the past 10 or 12 years, even longer than that, maybe there have been, you know, bleeding bodies or dead bodies, dead, dead girls in particular, you know, which I just think has always been such a, um, a problem, you know, in so, so much of like film and television. And instead of ignoring it, you know, I just wanted to embrace it and try to present this problematic thing, but do it in a way that, that felt like it was also critiquing it and thinking about it and both in cinema and in real life and, and as both a person and a filmmaker. So, and I think that, you know, again, as a consumer of films and especially, you know, kind of horror and thriller and the psychological and the uh, surreal, um, I just feel like as a, as a visual filmmaker, you know, the, uh, the sort of horror, f- uh, in particular allows me to really lean into the fantastical, you know, and kind of lean into the surreal, you know, I mean, I love, um, I pointed out earlier before we started uh, to my Maya Darendal, you know, who's the kind of queen of, of surreal or sort of like the, you know, my godmother on some level, of course, I never, I never (laughs) knew her, but, you know, she was deeply influential to me as a, um, or her films were deeply influential to me as a young filmmaker, um, the way that she uses herself and the, you know, and the surreal and a kind of, you know, a, a dark parallel world. So I like being able to lean into, I like being able to lean into the surreal and the fantastical, you know, and I think that horror is a really great way to do that. And I like to continue to think about bodies and female bodies and erupting, <laughs> erupting bodies. <laughs> and, you know, there's, that's, that's hard to do in a family drama or, a, or, or a romantic comedy. I mean, Signature Move, which you brought up was like a very special, a special project because when Fazia Mirza, who was the co-writer and the producer and the star of that film approached me to do it, I was like, does anybody die? She said, no. I was like, does anybody, you know, there are, does that, is anybody bleeding at any point? No, not that we see on film, not, or not that we see on the, on the screen, you know, I was like, does anybody sing? Are there, you know, I just kept kind of going through <laughs> the things that I like to do. And she kept saying, no, no, no. She said, but it is this like really special Chicago based story about, you know, women of color falling in love. And, and I was like, okay, I love that. And I will try it out. You know, I mean, it's, it's it, on the one hand, it feels like a very different film than what I, what I normally am, but it was like, it's still like a cousin to what I normally do, you know, and I was still able to kind of like lean into with these beautiful Mexican and Pakistani cultures, you know, visually, but, and to, and write something that, that was delightful and that people really liked laughing at and not from dark humor, you know, but then I, I made that film and then I happily pivoted back into, to the, my dark world. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So one of the things, and this is kind of getting a little bit ahead of, of, of my conversation, but one of the things that stood out to me is you were talking about, uh, in particular, the way that like films and televisions, television handles, uh, the dead female body. And what kind of struck me about Knives and Skin, I rewatched it this weekend because it, it had been, it's been, I think two years since I saw it was the fact that the, uh, the, the dead girl in that is actively trying to not be seen. Like she's rolling away from the camera and her body vanishes. And so there's, there, yeah, there's that magical aspect of it, but it kind of just is like poking my mind now as you were talking about that. Yeah. And you know, with, with, um, with Carolyn Harper in that, you know, in that film, I, 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 I knew that she, um, you know, I knew that I wanted her to be a, to, to kind of be a dead body pretty quickly mm-hmm. towards the beginning of the film. And for that not to be 
a mystery and for us as the audience to be able to take her in as a character, actually an yeah. active character. Yeah. But I didn't want to define her as like, you know, she's not quite a ghost. She's not quite a zombie. She has agency. I mean, not in the, in not in the way of like, Swiss Army Man or something. I mean, she's not a, <laughs> she's not, or like Weekend at Bernie's, you know what I mean? Right. She's not a parrot, she's not a joke, but she has agency. And I think that, that, right, she's sort of disappearing from the camera. But I, when I was writing it, I actually imagined that her movement was also moving actually closer to the characters so that she could oh, be found yeah. by them, you know, and, that's, um, I mean, I'm a little bit of a, well, let's, let's, let's actually tell it like it is. I'm a big kind of true crime, um, you know, fan, you know, both in terms of TV and, you know, podcasts and, you know, books and articles and whatnot. And, you know, it's always so sad when there's a person that, um, goes missing and their bodies are, are either never found or their mm. bodies are found so much so much longer after they have died, you know, the, 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 the sort of loneliness and, and, and the idea of someone sort of a, a body, you know, a dead body being kind of out in the, in the wilderness hidden and, and having no agency to say, mm. I'm, here I am, I'm over I'm here. here, you know? Um, so I, so I wanted to give her this kind of impossible task of being a dead body who, knows that she is dead, but is, you know, is also kind of willing herself to be found. And yeah. in her, in her kind of reanimation is what also is sending out these, I don't know if it's like signals to the other characters or, or it's there, the other people in, the, in that town are, are worried about her missing. And obviously that kind of worry sends all of this, you know, emotional anxiety through the town and people break up and people get together and, mm -hmm. you know, other secrets are revealed, et cetera, which I think is not that uncommon when a, with, with a shared kind of tragedy, you know, yeah. like this, but I wanted to reanimate her, you know, and, um, and to the level of, of, of that, mo that scene in, in somewhere in the middle where she kind of leads off the, a whole, a whole bunch of the characters singing, you know, a, a kind of a lullaby version of, of, um, promises, promises, which is a scene that I think is also, you know, <laughs> speaking of polarizing, which with, with, you know, with some people are like WTF, um, <laughs> Yes, or like WTF, like, no. And that's actually a moment that was, um, a kind of a, not an ode to, but I bit directly from Magnolia. There's yeah. a scene in Magnolia where all those mm -hmm. characters are singing together. And not that I'm a bit, I'm really not a big PT Anderson fan by any means, but I really love Magnolia. Me too. It's my, it's the one movie of his that I like unabashedly love. I, I've talked about on the podcast multiple times. It's so smart. It's so complicated. He was so young when he made it. It's just like unbelievable how complicated that film is and how funny and heartbreaking. But I remember the and first weird. time. I, and weird. Oh my gosh. So weird. And the first time that I saw it in that scene where they're all singing, I just was like, hold on, what's going on here? You know, I yes. just, I felt like, you know, and I know that, 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 I mean, there was the awkwardness of it, the weirdness, the breaking of the wall, et cetera. And I just loved that scene so much. And I remember as, you know, a young filmmaker watching that and being like, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. <laughs> I'm going to bite that someday. And it didn't become clear when I needed to do that until Knives and Skin. And it didn't even become clear till like further on in the, writing of that script phase that I wanted them all to sing. I wanted Carolyn's 
voice to kind of anchor them all that she starts the song and they all mm-hmm. sing to her. Um, and, um, anyway, yeah, but it's a, and it, it, I'd say one more thing about that, that, you know, I had been asked when that, when that, when Knives and Skin first came out about how I could consider myself, you know, a feminist filmmaker and make a film like that, that sort of, um, sort of ex- um, uses so much this image of the, of the dead girl. And from my perspective, it's like, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm allowed to also be a filmmaker who's, who's working out my own, um, my own relationship to problematic images. And I'm allowed to be a filmmaker who, who also happens to be a parent who is working out, you know, my own relationship to, to like the greatest fears of my life, you know? Mm, And I, you know, and I also think that I'm a, I'm, I'm a woman who, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a human woman in the world, um, who is, is also trying to, you know, I mean, literally on a daily basis still, which is so sad working out, you know, how, how I contribute to the, you know, to abolishing, you know, violence against women or mm-hmm. violence against people in general, you know? Yeah. And I, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to make triggering images. You know, I don't, I think that there's a lot of films, um, where the, the, the film was ab- about, about the, about something. Um, but they, um, you know, the images in the film are actually kind of like re, re-traumatizing or re, or re-triggering, right. you know? Right. And, um, so I didn't want to do that. And I don't, you know, I can't say, I, I, for me, I succeeded. I mean, we actually, when we were, um, preparing the kind of hair and makeup for the actor who played Carolyn Harper, we actually looked at a bunch of these really extraordinary figure paintings by a painter named Jenny Seville, who, um, you know, her paintings are so gorgeous and they're just, you know, they're, they're, they really are about bodies and kind of goopy, smudgy bodies, you know, but we weren't looking at actual corpses, you know, we were looking at paintings and actually trying to make something that didn't look like a real dead body, you know, but that looked like, like, like a, um, a representation of one. So I don't know, I was, I was careful to do that. And I, and I, and I stand by, I stand by, I stand by Carolyn Harper. I think you should. I I think you should. It surprised me that people are saying that maybe it wasn't a feminist film because I found it incredibly, especially on this rewatch, just incredibly impactful uh, from a feminist lens. There seems to be a hard time. I think sometimes people have a hard time with women trying to reclaim their violence that's enacted against their bodies. Mm. I found that as a person who writes about like rape revenge films and finds those kinds of movies very fascinating and empowering, people... Like I did my grad, my graduate thesis on rape revenge films and people were like, how can you do this as a woman? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It's always just very awkward that people seem to have that perspective that in my experience, at least that like somehow we as women aren't allowed to try to like process our experiences through embracing those representations it's just a very, it's weird. No, I agree. And I think, I think there, you know, in this, in this, in Knives and Skin and in a lot of the other films that I made leading up to Knives and Skin, I mean, I also was, I got criticism for the, the Carolyn Harper's mother's character who is, um, who seduces this young man, but co- kind of as an extension of her, not kind of, as an extension of her, of her grief, you know, which I think grief is extraordinary and particular and personal and 
grieving people do all do all sorts of weird things and make all yep. sorts of mistakes because presumably you are dealing with the most horrific horrible thing you've ever dealt with you've never dealt with it before you have no you know yeah no one's telling you how to deal with it and I love writing comp complicated and difficult women and I and I like writing even women who are on the verge of of being unlikable I yeah. mean, kind of that's why I like Carrie, you know, I mean, um, you know, I think that that the idea that a woman writing, you know, writing scripts and directing films has to only portray other women in a certain way um, is uh, uh, is ridiculous. And to to be criticized for writing, you know, women who make mistakes and are mean, you know, um, that doesn't allow then for, um, that's just, you know, then you're, you're, um, you know, you're, you're simply, uh, reinstating, you know, certain ideas about who women are. And I think that there are, you know, my, my, my claim is that there are still so many, you know, statistically, uh, films with female leads do better at the box office and, and in terms of kind of, um, ratings, uh, according to the, you know, Gina Davis Institute or another, you know, stat collecting organizations. And yet so many of those films are written and directed by men. Yeah. You know, I just think that, and they, they portray women in a certain way. And even the ones, uh, gosh, I remember being on an airplane and I watched back to back Silver Linings Playbook, Black Swan and Blue Jasmine. I mean, there had to have been not that much more to watch, you know, but I feel like those are three films, both, you know, all three directed by men, all three of them that are about unraveling women. And all three of them were sort of, were sort of like profoundly disappointing to me. And I remember just like, and it was like a transatlantic flight going the the other way over the ocean. So everybody else was either asleep or, you know, and I was like, are you guys, did you guys watch Black Swan? You didn't watch it. You watch Black, Blue Jasmine. Anybody watching Blue? No. Okay. Never mind. You know. I mean, I was so like wanted to unpack it. You know, um, wanted to sort of like unpack that ex- that experience. But everybody else, you know, opted for different films or was like you know sleeping their way over the Atlantic Ocean. What, one of the things that I think we're seeing recently is um, now that there are more queer people writing queer roles, that we're seeing queer characters that aren't necessarily likable sometimes. And a lot of the feedback, particularly, unfortunately, from gay people is that or queer people is that, you know, you're not you're not presenting us in a good light. And I'm like, we can't have queer filmmaking is such a niche thing still, that we can't have just like one monolith, because all that's going to do is show one side of the queer experience to people. And there are I I know some there are complete assholes who happen to be queer. You know, it's just you can't. And so I was thinking about that as you're talking about um, women directors making problematic characters or making female characters that are unlikable. It's part of the experience, you're going to run into that. Right. And I actually think that that some of the best kind of like, you know, um, film protagonists of all races and, and genders and, um, you know, sexual orientations, et cetera, et cetera, you know, abilities, et cetera, are, um, you know, they're complicated and we love them because they, they are maybe at the end of the day, kind of unknowable, you know, Mm -hmm. and unpredictable and yeah. And maybe they don't, they don't always make the most ethical decisions, you know, and their, their, their motivations are, are murky, you know, and, uh, 
And, you know, I, I think that it's, it just goes back to the sense of, uh, you know, that, that makes a complicated human. I actually feel like that's yeah. what we all are as, you know, as complicated humans. We, you know, we get to make mistakes and we get to kind of lean into instincts, which maybe, you know, <laughs> Uh, can disrupt our our ability to, to sort of like have the best kind of ethical judgment from time to time. But I think that, you know, it shouldn't be the case that only certain people are allowed to have those complications and that everybody else has to be, has to have a kind of polished, old school fairy tale kind mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. fairy 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 godmother fairy godfather fairy genderqueer you know however you want yep. to describe it you know it's just like it's no it's it's not fair i remember again on a on a, on a plane watching karn kusama's destroyer mm. the hair and makeup in that one is a little off <laughs> i think but um God, you know, Nicole Kidman as that main character, you know, or that main character is just awesome. You know, yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I was like, God, I hate her. I love her. I yeah. love to hate her. I hate loving her, you know, or whatever. I just think that's a really brilliant, a, a really, really brilliant film. I mean, she, that was somebody who I was like, in real life, I would want to be, I would want to be friends with that woman, even though I would be 100% terrified of that woman. You know, and yeah. I don't know. I just thought that that was a really, she was a really, really complicated um, person, colleague, mother. And I, I think that's the other thing too, like making another layer is like making difficult mothers, you know, mm. because again, there's this sense that sort of like, and this happens in real life, like the idea that once you become a mother that then there's no that somehow that makes like biologically that makes you unable to to like make you know bad decisions or 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 make unethical decisions and uh you know that's real unfair too you know that (laughs) sort of eliminates your ability to actually be you know human after you become a mother and i'm certainly not talking about you know any parent who is, who is, you know, um, mean to their child, you know, I mean, that's not, that, those are not the kind, those are not the, the characters that I, you know, that I write by any means, but yeah, think, you know, Carolyn Harper's mother is someone who was, you know, grieving to the point of wanting to get as close to, as close yep. as she could to the last person who saw her, her child alive. I mean, that for me feels Peculiar and particular, but authentic, potentially very authentic and really believable. Because I think that we all have seen cases where if the grieving parent, especially the grieving mother, doesn't grieve in a way that the rest of society thinks is appropriate, then maybe she killed her kid. Yep. You know, which is like, that's a big, that's a big leap. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so VHS, you mentioned earlier, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you, because it seems from an outside perspective that writing and directing a wraparound segment, particularly when it's not – when it's like interjected throughout the story as well, is a lot more difficult than telling a story that is beginning, middle, end. Here's your 20 minutes. Uh, so I was kind of curious what your uh, experience was doing doing that. So I came in kind of late in the process. I was contacted by two of the producers in – Gosh, I mean, it might have been March. 
of 2021, this past March. Um, wow. Because David Bruckner, who was supposed to, who's been involved in the, in the VHS franchise for a while, had just gotten called off to do Hellraiser. And mm. what she's doing right now with a female pin, pinhead, which is going to be awesome. I'm so and, excited. Um, so uh, they needed a new director to, to do the wraparound and pretty quickly because it was all things were time sensitive. Chloe had already shot Ratma. Ryan and um, Simon were going into production within a couple of weeks of them talking to me. So the, the, so like the train, so to say, had like left the station. Right. At that point, part of Ryan's um, section involved like a, an actor from, from what the sort of idea that I had inherited and Timo, well, Timo's section changed very, very much. So, you know, he hadn't shot his section. He actually shot his section after mine, but there was a little bit of an idea of the other shorts, parts of the other shorts already had incorporated the general idea of a, a SWAT team who raids what they think is a super drug lab and then it turns into something else. I mean, that kind of was the most bare bones. I inherited a script from David Bruckner and Simon Barrett. Neither script, and they'll, they'll, they'll say this to you also, was like fully fleshed out. It was, it mm-hmm. was, it, it, it kind of wanted to be its own kind of short. But I think at the same time, they were just like, oh, I don't know. Nobody pays that much attention to the wraparound. They just want to get back to the shorts. And, you know, I just thought that – Oh, and there was already a, a cast attached. So everybody who's in the wraparound of VHS 94 was already attached. The producers, you know, gave me the option of um, of recasting it. But, you know, I just thought, gosh, you know, I've been waiting to make a film for all of 2020. And I'm sure these actors have been waiting to make a film again, you know, so I'm not going to just <laughs> recast it. I, if, if right. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the filmmaker I think I am if I can't, you know, kind of inherit a cast, inherit a, a, a like one little half of a sentence of a log line and make <laughs> something of it. So I, um, I did, I did do something that, that again was like maybe too ambitious for, for maybe any anthology, which is I wrote the wraparound as its own short. Mm. There was an ending that got kind of cut. There was a, another or an, a beginning and an ending that both got cut and other bits of storyline in the middle that also got cut mostly in service to kind of getting back to the shorts, you know? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, I would say like, okay, I get that. On the other hand, I would say, okay, uh, you know, audiences are smart. And if you do the wraparound the right way, an audience, I mean, there's all sorts of, of films that are told, that are told entirely out of order. And an audience isn't, I mean, God, I just hate that I'm going to bring up Quentin Tarantino, but let's just talk about Pulp Fiction just for a second, not just as a structure, you know, that, um, I mean, fuck Quentin Tarantino. Let me just say that out loud. But also, you know, if we think about if if I look at Pulp Fiction just structurally, it's not like an audience comes back to a moment that happened before the other moment and is like, oh my god, the movie start over. Like, I don't, I don't understand what just happened. You know, what I mean, right? You know, film audiences are actually, I think, a lot smarter than some film producers think that they are. You know, and I've found that horror, horror fans are the 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 biggest cinephiles mm-hmm. have watched everything can talk about everything get you know understand film theory without ever having taken film theory understand you know film history without ever taking film history anyway so 
you know, I just, I tried to do something that was a short film. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I sort of had to acquiesce and say like, okay, I get it. The wraparound is, you know, there has to be, you know, sort of like in service to the, to the shorts. But what I did was, was take on a kind of feminist, um, videodrome. I'm a big, um, Cronenberg fan mm-hmm. and, and I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted the, the wraparound to feel, kind of in that like ode to vi- to videodrome but you know long live the new female flesh Hell kind yeah. of mentality <laughs> i love that speaking of uh, all hail the new female flesh i think that's a good transition to carry maybe <laughs> yeah. but uh mm-hmm. jennifer what film are we talking about today we are talking about um brian de palma's carry based on a novel by the first novel from stephen king um, the film was made in 1976, starring um, Sissy Spacek and um, Piper Laurie. Oh, Piper Laurie. Amy Irving mm. and um, a supporting part by John Travolta. Yes. that Wow. John, I forgot John Travolta was in this movie. Um, but really quick, let's read a, I'll read a synopsis for everyone who needs to get caught up. Uh, Carrie White, a shy, friendless teenage girl who is sheltered by her domineering religious mother, unleashes her telekinetic powers after being humiliated by her classmates at her senior prom. So I, let's take it back to the beginning. I have to know, how did you see this movie? When did you see it? Give us your horror story. I want to know everything about your first time watching this movie. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I was trying to think about the first time I saw it, and it, and it certainly wasn't when it first came out, because I was much too young when it first came out. And um, I grew up in a household with, a, a you know, a, a small group of, of older brothers mm. who, when my parents would leave, would, you know, kind of troll around the the cable channels, <laughs> you know, watch things that, you know, were certainly inappropriate for me, but that was not something that they were thinking about. They, wa- they wanted to watch what right. they wanted to watch. I'm certain that I saw it when I was probably 12 or 13 and prior to starting my own first menstrual cycle (laughs) (laughs) um and not in high and not in (laughs) high school you know i i remember i mean not unlike carrie the thing is i remember watching that opening scene and being just as confused about what was happening to her and I, my mom, who's 90, is still alive, and I love her dearly, but she, she was not at all like, you know, Mrs. Mrs. White, but she was this uh, kind of staunch Irish Catholic mother <sighs> who did not talk to me about menstruation. She didn't. When I yeah. asked her, yeah. I, remember, I remember, I remember she, I saw that she had like a, a box of um, napkins in her closet on the show. And I was like, mom, why do you have napkins? Like, why? I was thinking like, you know, dinner napkins or whatever. Mm-hmm. Why do you have napkins in your closet? And she just was just like, we're not going to talk about that right now or whatever. <laughs> I don't, that was, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> you know, but I just grew up with, with a mother who really did not want to talk to me about what, would happen to my body. And I don't know if she just assumed that I would learn that in school or that I would learn it on my own or that somehow I would have an instinct towards it. I'm not sure. So, but all I'm saying is like when I, when I watched Carrie for the first time and she's bleeding in the shower and does not understand what's happening to her, I remember watching it for the first time and I didn't also, I also didn't know what was happening to her. So I didn't understand why they were laughing at her and then why her mom was so mad. I mean, I think that, that it was 
as a, as like a young girl watching it, I just also was in the dark about what was happening to her. And then of course it just gets like, so social, so social clicky, you know, and it it goes into this other place, this other dark place where probably as, I don't know what grade I was in, maybe sixth or seventh, you know, where I was just like, gosh, the mean girls really will get even meaner. You know, I mean, there was something, (laughs) there was something that was like socially the idea that like, that there's horror. The horror is every day. You know, you are going to be haunted by, it's not the, the ghosts in the backyard or the monsters under the bed. It's like that, you know, bitchy head cheerleader that's going to, you know, really be your demise. And maybe also an overprotective mom, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, like, like I said, I love my mother so dearly and she and I ha- have a very, very close relationship, but she was definitely you know, had her sort of controlling moments when I was, you know, much younger. And so there was also something that felt really scary about that mother-daughter relationship. My mother, for the record, never, ever locked me in a closet. You know, (laughs) I did not have to read Bible verses or anything like that, you know? There's no scary cat-eyed Jesus. (laughs) No, 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 thankfully, nope. And then I, I, I remember, God, it's like that end. I remember actually feeling really uh, you know, empowered even as a young person at the end where, you know, at the, at the prom where she's that image of her covered in blood in her beautiful mm-hmm. little dress, you know, and her tiara just covered in blood, just shutting the whole prom down, you know, shutting the whole town down, you know, also mm-hmm. felt, um, you know, that, that sort of revenge, that vent revenge, vengeance, you know, moment was, um, was great. And then of course there's like that incredible jump scare at the end. Oh, when, the stinger. When, when, yes. when Sue's having her nightmare, you know, and Carrie's arm comes up through the, <laughs> through the ground is great. Cause it's not a film that's got, it's not a film that's scary because of jump scares. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that there, there weren't other films that I saw as a kid. I mean, I was also thinking even just today talking to you guys, you know, there was a film that I saw around that same time, the legend of boggy Creek. You know, which is a kind, oh, which, yes. which is a kind of found footage, yes. you know, about a big a Bigfoot, and that has a lot of jump scares and is in that kind of found footage style. And I remember being really scared, really, really like, huh, like that kind of jump scare. Carrie is not about the jump scares. Carrie's like about the like, it's about like the the deep the deepness, you know, the deep psychology mm-hmm. around family and and religion and and. uh you know, girlhood and vengeance. And I don't know, it's just, it's so, it's so, it's so, it's so powerful. It's astonishing. It's astonishing that that film was, was um, both written by a man and directed by a man. Cause I think yes. that, I think both the novel and the film are honestly masterful. I mean, I actually am a Stephen King. I like write. I love reading Stephen King, you know, literature. I mean, it's like a kind of a beach read and a plane read, yeah. you know, and I just think it's actually really smart and funny, you know, so, so much of his, his horror is funny and clever. And, and I love that oftentimes like, one story refers to another story, you know, mm-hmm. and you realize it's, we're all part of that, you know, we're all part of that universe. And I am a Brian De Palma super fan, you know, I mean, body double, dress to kill, blowout. I mean, that kind of era of that. I mean, I've, you know, he went on to do other things, you know, sort of like more recently, but that whole kind of seventies to the eighties, Brian De Palma is just irresistible. It's like Phantom of the Paradise. God, oh, it's, that's right. It's like, Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. 
it's like er- there's some erotic moments, you oh, know, yeah. and the kind of this this sort of like drifty can like this this camera and the you know the, the exactly the sort of like split diopter stuff. It's you know it's so distinctive. He was such a singular director on some level. Yeah, I find the whole De Palma catalog pretty irresistible. But yeah, that was the origins of um, of Carrie, and I think that it's a film that I wanted to talk about because I actually think that it's really it's still so fresh. I've not watched any of the new iterations of Carrie. I just can't. I was going to ask no, about no, that. No, 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 I won't. I can't. <laughs> you know, because it just feels like. Also, I'm a big Sissy Spacek fan. I had to. I had to relook um, just today at when she did Badlands, which I'm a big. Um, fan of of Terrence Malick's Badlands, which she did when she would like just three years prior, she made um, it's like 1973 that she made um, Badlands, which is also another great kind of subtle serial killer movie, you know, with her and Martin Sheen, um, a very young Martin Sheen. But um, I'm a I'm a yeah I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of hers, and so I feel you know I I feel beholden to the to the De Palma Spacek. Carrie. Mary Beth, when did you see this movie? Um, I don't remember when, but I do remember I was young because I knew I knew what periods were. I do know that. But my mom was very my mom is the opposite of your mom, Jennifer. And my mom uh-huh. was very excited to teach me all about the wonderful world of being a woman. We were very open about <laughs> it in my household, and it scared the shit out of me. I do remember watching it. I, I always remember like I was sitting in my dad's one of my dad's apartment where he was living with his second wife. And we were watching it, and he, my dad sucks. I don't speak to him. He was giggling at the beginning because he's a, uh. and a, a child, and that's just like why I remember it. This is it's terrible. My memory of Carrie was like my dad laughing at all the boobs with his preteen daughter, and laughing at uh, plug it up and dirty pillows. Um, uh-huh. So obviously, great. Um, I also remember being very freaked out by how she got her period, like how it just started like, it's like, it's kind of an aggressive period, like start, it's like not terrible, it's not like squirting, but it is very much like jarring to see her period Uh start like that. And then I remember the end. Uh I don't remember much else other than my dad being immature. And then also like the, obviously the ending where she like blows everything up. Uh And I hadn't seen it until recently. I wrote about Carrie and I rewatched it before this a couple, like a couple of weeks ago, actually. I forgot how, I I don't remember any of like the stuff in between, like the end, the Uh beginning and the end. And Uh I just forgot how deeply sad this movie makes me and how like just, it hurts my heart a lot, like watching, especially watching Carrie yeah. get bullied, because that I think I I had a memory when I was watching it that like this movie made me terrified of going to high school because I was like ready to get bullied in the locker room. Like I was, mm-hmm. I was not like a Carrie level, but like I was a nerd and I was a little bit weird and I was just like I I just knew I was gonna get my ass kicked in the locker room. I didn't. No one did, but like mm-hmm. I was just terrified, and like this mm-hmm. watching it as an adult kind of brought back that fear. This movie kind of instilled in my heart of high school girls because this movie, like mm-hmm. the women and the girls in this movie, are like next level cruel to Carrie. Like mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. the beginning. It's like eat shit, and like they're hitting her because she misses one mm-hmm. volleyball, like one thing at the volleyball court. I don't know what I don't know sports, and from then on, it's just like. 
plug it up and just abuse after abuse Mm -hmm, this poor mm -hmm. girl and no one's really doing anything about it really like the teacher kind of steps i don't know this whole thing just made me very terrified of high school (laughs) the idea Mm -hmm. of getting to the prom yes no doubt no doubt and i think that it's not just you know i I mean i watched it again i've i've watched it a ton a ton of times but i was like i watched it again yesterday just to sort of like get all fresh and god i mean I was, I was thinking like, God, if there was a, if there was a follow-up that was like a kind of a, a fan fiction follow-up, it would, be, it would be called like, Eve was weak, you know, cause there was like that <laughs> really, you know, she, she goes from having this, and, and well, Carrie is so kind of self-aware, you know, she yes. comes home and her mom has gotten a phone call from school and that said like she started her period and her mother, you know, thinks it's this, this sinful thing. And Carrie understands, like, you should have told me, you know, that I think this is normal. You should have told me. Yeah. And her mother's just like, like, she can't, um, she's getting bullied at school. She's getting bullied at home. But we also get to experience her as someone who is, she's not stupid. She, she no. has a self-awareness. You know, there's some like kind of tender moments with, you know, her and Amy Irving's, um, you know, boyfriend, Tommy, who asks her to the prom, which is like, you know, kind of a setup, but also just kind of an acceptance thing, which of course kind of goes all, goes all wrong. We understand. And, and you, and you get to see these other moments of like the, those supporting kind of crazy bitchy girls and see what their home life is like or see how they, you know, Nancy Allen, who I so love all of her moments and other Brian De Palma films. And there's a scene in the, in the car with her and John Travolta where she's kind of like, she kisses him and then she moves away and he can't understand. Like, there's just like this understanding that, you know, um, that even the teen girls who seem to be the ringleaders of this bullying are not, you know, no one's actually talked to them about being kind of self-aware of their sexuality and, and, but, but it's, that's why it's just like so incredibly smart that somehow, I mean, and I could see another read of this film going in a, a down a very kind of, um, oh, this is a very, you know, anti-feminist anthem or very anti, you know, female empowerment, but you know, and that's not all that I'm interested in, you know, but I just think that there's, it's complex, you know, the women in this film are complicated from Carrie to, like Sue's mother, Sue is the Amy is Amy Irving's character. Sue's mother, who um, you know, Carrie's mom goes to kind of sell her Bibles or whatever, yes. and she's like drinking in the afternoon, watching a soap opera or something. I mean, it's subtle, but like, oh, that's something, you know. And then, um, yeah, then you know, the Carrie's mother, Piper Laurie herself, who <sighs> eventually. Um, confesses that, you know, Carrie's father, like she was basically, you know, had like so much lust for this man who had whiskey on his breath. I mean, it's like really the layers have layers have layers. And yeah, the, the, um, you know, Betty Buckley character, eight is enough. The mom from eight is enough, or maybe a stepmom, was she a stepmom from eight is enough? Um, who, yeah, tries to help, but is also, you know, also is not, you know, her, her intentions are also maybe kind of unclear. Yeah. And then the end just turns into that great, what you needed from that moment, which is just like pure rageaholic, pure yes. teenage girl, rageaholic, you know, yeah. who still may or may not be menstruating. The, 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 the time frame of this film, it could be a week. It could be two weeks. It's really unclear. She might be right at the tail end of 
of uh, of that of that first period. Well, and so you said that about Carrie's self awareness and all the other girls. Like the moment I also think of is when she gets asked to the prom and she's sitting kind of like on that bench away from everybody, mm-hmm. and the teacher comes to talk to her and she's like they're fucking with me. Like, I know why he asked me uh-huh. to prom. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she got about self-awareness, but then the teacher is like, oh, but you're so pretty. You could put on mascara and you could put on lipstick and blush and do your hair. And there's just like this emphasis on aesthetic sexuality, if that makes sense, like looking sexual, uh-huh. but not actually going into like the nitty gritty of what it means to be a sexual being, which I really picked up like thinking about this time. It's like there's this emphasis on women being pretty, looking a certain way and what that means. But when it comes to like what it means to actually have a vagina and like function as a like like that kind yeah, of stuff. Right. It's just like it's terrifying to everybody to even think about. Mm-hmm. So it's and yeah, because it's like, you know, you get your period. Everyone gets your period. But the peri- period to terrify still and to this day periods terrify people and it's just fascinating that it's like these yeah. these young women who get their period also see it as disgusting like we are yeah well, and I, it's really true and i wonder you know i mean i don't know how many we definitely do not see women menstruating on commercials right the liquid is blue which right. I, I mean anyone still wondering Who's not seen menstrual blood? It's not. It's not pale it's not blue. blue Sorry, <laughs> I just wanted to t- tell you that. Um, and um, and I think that we still. What lies are television telling me? <laughs> there, there still is so okay. There's also like the first a first period scene in um Blue Lagoon. You know this film with Brooke Shields. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a. They were like they're lost on an island, and she has her period yep. for the first time. And I mean, I would love to know. There can't be a hundred films. I mean, there has to be less than a hundred films. There has to maybe. Is there, I mean, I don't know. I would. I don't. I'm maybe I'll go down a rabbit hole this week. This week and figure out how many and how many films you've actually seen. What we could think of as, um, you know, as menstrual, you know, menstrual blood, actual menstrual blood in a in a film because people are very very bloody in lots and lots and lots of films. But you know, I don't. I wonder how often it's menstrual blood. I mean, I was just thinking like for a film that was made in 1976. You know, that starts off with a scene of, you know, a naked girl who's bleeding, but, you know, in an, in a, from a natural way. I don't know. Like it just was, it's a, it's a, it's a curious, it's curious to me, you know, and I've definitely, I mean, there's a menstrual scene in, in, um, in Knives and Skin where you think a woman is having a miscarriage and then you realize that she's actually, you know, um, just having her, her period and faking her pregnancy. That's a spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen knives and skin, but I made it so I can spoil it if there I you need go. to, you know? Um, but yeah, it's a real curiosity to me. And I think that it's actually, it actually is related to why I like making the films that I make, you know, and why, in even the past five years or something, people have asked me a lot, like, well, why do you think there's this, you know, why do you think there's so many women who are, you know, writing about horror as like, you know, writers and critics and theoreticians, et cetera, historians, or why are there so many more women, you know, um, writing horror as script writers or making horror as directors? And, um, First, I, I say, well, you know, a teenage girl invented the most famous monster. I mean, Mary Shelley was a teenager when Frankenstein was published. But, you know, it, it also, for me, it's about um, our relationship to our bodies and menstruation. You know, I mean, it's like from a very young age, you have a very consistent, pretty robust relationship with blood at any, it's all very different. I mean, I know, Mary Beth, you were saying that Carrie's, 
you know, Carrie's first menstrual cycle was, was more, was, was more gushy than you've experienced, but I've definitely had sort of like gushy moments where I was like, I'm, I was like, I'm a crime scene. I'm instantly oh, a crime yeah. gushy, scene. Gushy know? for first period. I get my, I have experienced my fair share of a crime. Or were you, crime right, you went, that you're like, uh oh, <laughs> this is Bad. Or you, you, or you wake up in the in the morning. And I actually shot. There's a, a short film also that's that's also on my Vimeo called All All Small Bodies, where there's a scene where a girl starts her period for the first time, but she doesn't. She's like you know in bed with another girl, not in a sexual way, but they're just like in they're in you know bed together, and she looks at the other girl, and the other girl has like blood all over her mouth, but because the girl who started her period has started her period and she's kind of moved around the bed and then she's mm. kind of her hands have landed on the other girl's face, you know, like as, as things do when one is sleeping in a sound way, you know, and moves around. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think that, that our relationship to, to blood, you know, from a very young age makes us, um, you know, uh, uh, um, qualified to, to to make films about blood and i think that we you know i mean carrie is a different kind of predator and prey movie but i think that we also learn from an early age who are the predator and who are prey you know which is also very unfair to men you know i mean i just think and i'm being very binary right now but i think that you know that sort of like any any man who has been walking down the street and sees a, a sees a girl walk on the across the street and walk away or something like that or clutch her purse when he gets closer or something like that has experienced another a different another kind of um you know kind of prejudgment but i think that we we know blood you know we learn fear you know we learn how to be afraid we learn that fear is a part of you know our lives i mean we are taught how to not, you know, get attacked or get raped, you know, as opposed to men not being, not being told yeah. like, Hey, here's something, here's, here's something, a wild idea. Don't fucking rape anybody. You know what I mean? And of course women can, you know, be sexual, you know, assaulters and violators as well. Of course, I, I'm just want to clarify my, my binariness right now. But yeah, and I think that, I think there's been a lot of, I mean, you know, Hitchcock's Rebecca is also a, a favorite, you know, film of mine that was based on a, you know, a book that was written by a woman, Pat Patricia Highsmith and, mm -hmm. you know, Shirley Jackson. I mean, Octavia mm -hmm. Butler. I mean, there's been so many, um, women who have dealt with, um, horror in terms of literature, you know, and really goopy, gory stuff. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that kind of popped out to me in, the, in this conversation we had is the, so the first time I, I had a realization when I was watching it this time that um, the first time I started to watch this movie, I was watching it with my parents and I was probably nine or 10 and we didn't get very far because um, as I've talked about on the, on the podcast, my parents were very much uh, if there's nudity in it, you're not going to watch it. Well. <laughs> uh, so this opens up. And so I remember being absolutely horrified that this, this woman is running towards the camera with blood on her hands, no idea what was happening. And I'm like, what is this? And then my parents are like, nope, we're done and turned it off. And so that was my, my first experience with Carrie. Then, um, I've also mentioned on the podcast before where my parents became a little bit more, um, conservative in terms of the content I was consuming on, on television. So I started reading and that's how I discovered Stephen King. And I remember reading the book and still reading the book, being confused. Like, I don't understand what a period is. I don't understand what is happening to this woman. I don't understand any of this, but then 
convincing my parents a couple years later that like I've read the book so I can see this movie and so then they had let me watch the movie by myself and so I watched the movie and I was still utterly confused and horrified about what was happening I must have been like 11 or 12 at the time and I remember not well I remember as a kid not liking the movie because the book is a lot more I would say epic towards the end yeah, where uh-huh. she you know she's walking through the town she's blowing up gas stations power lines are falling like the mm. the path of destruction she leaves in her wake to her mom's house is quite epic. Mm-hmm. Of course none of that is in here. She leaves there's a lot of destruction at the prom she you know just she kills Chris and Billy mm-hmm. and then she's at the house. So like I remember being disappointed as a kid and that's my that was my takeaway from it being mm-hmm. so confused as to what was happening and to being disappointed at the lack of destruction in the movie. But I started thinking, rewatching this now about how terrible public school sex education is. <laughs> you fucking think? Because like, <laughs> because I was, I remember in fifth grade and I remember, I know it was fifth grade because I remember my teacher in, in Alaska. So Mrs. Michael Sheck, if you were out there, I remember you. There's one day uh-huh. where like she was like doing anatomy. It was very basic anatomy, but it uh-huh. was reproductive anatomy. And she had put a box in the room and she's like, if you have any embarrassing questions that you want to ask, you can put it in there. And me not knowing anything at all about human she was anatomy. Like, I have a box if you want to put something in it. <laughs> I didn't even get that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that one. Anyway, Terry, continue. Continue. But, I remember sliding an, uh, my piece of paper in there, which into was <laughs> into her box, which uh, said, what do men's balls have? Because <laughs> I didn't know what they were called. I didn't know any of that. And so <laughs> that is literally what I put in the box. What? And I remember to this day, that is exactly how it was written. What do men's balls have? Did she? What, what was her answer? So you got to Mrs. Michael Sheck was this very prim. She was from she was from Britain, so she still had an accent. And she's in class, and she is going through it. She has glasses. She had an accent. Yes, and she sits there, and she pulls out this this note, and she looks at it. She looks at the class, and she goes, "What do men's balls have?" And there was like this pause and the class started giggling. And then she's like, well, I think you're talking about testes. <laughs> and then she laid into like the discussion of it. But that was my first like – and the whole class laughed at, at my question, not knowing that I was the one that wrote it. And, and no one knew that it was me. But still, people are laughing about it. And so I, I remember thinking back to – when I saw this movie, thinking back about how people are laughing at her for her like body uh, and her sexuality uh-huh. and remember thinking about that when I when I when I was watching that movie. And then the last time we had sex education was in eighth grade and it was a whole week long and it was in science class and they separated the very binary, separated the men yeah. and the women. Mm-hmm. And we went into our own little things and the men learned – the boys learned about men's reproductive system. The women learned about f- female rep- reproductive system, but no one knew about anything else. And so right. there was still this this mystery and this, this magicalness and this confusingness about women's bodies that was not even answered. And that was like the only time we ever had sex education. My parents – uh, never talked about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything at all about any of the things what body was going to go through, just like through knowing friends or, you know, going through it myself. And it, it's a scary time and nothing to the extent of what, what's happening with, with Carrie ever happened, but it was still a frightening time because mm-hmm. no one would talk about it. And mm-hmm. when people did talk about it, it was all about laughs. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really true. And I think that even, um, 
I think that we are a culture obsessed with women's bodies and still actually mm-hmm. don't really know what they what's what's going on down there, you know. <laughs> and um, I mean, I have I have three sons, and I and I and I I I did you know I mean I talked to them as much as I could about their own bodies, but I remember trapping you know, at that point, like my 11 year old in the car, cause he had gotten a gift certificate to target or something. And I was like, okay, you know, like let's you and I go to target and pick something out. And so I trapped him. It was like a 15 minute drive. And I actually spoke to him only about, about, you know, female bodies, you know, cause I was like, I just want you to know like what happens. And, you know, this poor deer, he, you know, he, he got into Target and like, you know, picked out with his gift card, like a Star Wars minifigure. I mean, he was just like, he wasn't like, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to go buy a box of condoms. You know? <laughs> I mean, so he was still like, so 11. Was still 11. Maybe he was a little bit older, but I mean, I still, it still felt very important that he knew. And because I just thought like, and I remember like bracketing it, like if, if someone is making fun of a girl in your class, you know, or talking about periods, like I want you to know what it is and I want you to just stop it, stop that conversation. You mm-hmm. know, I want you to be the person who stops that conversation. And who knows if that's ever happened, you know, but, but it felt really important to talk to him about that. And, and, um, you know, and there's also, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole sequence of knives and skin where these two girls who are falling in love with each other, you know, you see that they've been exchanging little gifts to each other. That presumably, or what I, how I wrote it, they've been like hiding little trinkets in, in their vaginas to give to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, which I just wanted to write as a, as a most eccentric kind of way to pass a note to your secret crush or whatever. And when the film premiered at the Berlin Film Festival and even subsequent times that I screened it, but I remember at Berlin, you know, a, a sort of a very kind of German guy, you know, stood up and was like, you know, was is das? Was what was the scene with these girls and this passing of the, you know? And I was like, okay, well, uh, let's just break it down. You know, we have we have holes, we have holes, and <laughs> they fit things, and you know, I mean, I don't know. I just and of course, like you know, some of the and I didn't mean to like, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't trying to kind of like, I wasn't, I didn't want to like call this guy out and make fun of him. Right. But at the same time, I was kind of just like are you serious? Come on. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. please, you know, either if it's confusing to you, Google it, you know, or, or if you just want to try to, you know, not, I don't think that he was trying to embarrass me, but I think he was just really could not understand the idea that other things, other things besides dicks, could go into female bodies well and that like that kind of reminds me of my dad's reaction to carrie of just like my dad an adult man was with his teen like young daughter laughing at boobs and he was like and he specifically remember him saying bush like it was so and it to me and my and when i was that age i was giggling i'm like haha pubic hair like i didn't fucking know i was a child mm-hmm. and it's just so it's just so interesting now to watch it and just be like you fell into the trap <laughs> like you like this like trap of this like very slow like creepy slow like romantic teenage girls in the locker room like obviously trying to kind of play with that kind of net weird the male gay obviously the male gaze in the situation like they're mm-hmm. just 
so gross and he played right into it and it's just uh-huh. incredible incredibly frustrating when i think when i reflect upon that that experience and how like i think i missed and like i had missed the then i missed the point at my, at that age too and like i was also probably like 11 or 12 so I would have gone over my head anyway, but it was just like I never thought about the like, other characters as anything other than like boobs and bush, like throughout the entire uh-huh. movie, which is uh-huh. horrible that that happened. Yeah, and I, and I think that I think that if you know, I mean, I get it. I mean, now as an adult woman, you know, and knowing, like, honestly, really loving, you know, the the that kind of Brian De Palma era, you know, where there were a lot of like boobs and you know, boobs and bushes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but also thinking about, you know, that that was supposed to be a 16 year old girl, you yeah. know, who were looking at her boobs. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, bringing up this film was also not to say like, I mean, I definitely called it a masterpiece early and I stand by that. I mean, I'm also allowed to say like, it's, uh, if I were to have done that, you know, and I would never redo it, but I do think that there's, there are ways to, uh, you know, to talk about a naked or to portray a naked girl in the shower, a naked sixteen-year-old girl in the shower who started her period for the first time, and not necessarily um, have that actor who wasn't Sissy Spacek was not sixteen when she made it, right. you know, but to not sort of um, have someone else watching it like sexualize or like get aroused by like what they perceive as a 16 year old girl, you know, I mean, and I think that so, so I, you know, I mean, yeah, but, but that's also why I wanted to talk about it, you know, because I just, I, I think that there's, that there are, that there's ways to unpack this film as a woman, as a filmmaker, as an image maker, you know, in 2020, you know, in 2021, um, you know, et cetera, within the kind of Brian De Palma catalog within, you know, but also knowing like, well, uh, I don't know, like boobs are fine. Boobs are just a thing. It doesn't like we, we, you know, boobs don't have to be sexual, you know, even on a 16 year old girl, you know, like, why is that? Why is that the case? And maybe, maybe the combination of like, oh, a wet, you know, still scrawny, you know, um, 16 year old who's having her period, like those two things, maybe that's like a real conflation of actually what that body is, that it's actually not sexual, you know, mm-hmm. that it like that body bleeds. And if you find a bleeding, if, if you find a female bleeding body disgusting, you know, well, that's what female bodies do. That's what those cute perky boobs do. Or that's yeah. the bodies that belong to those perky little boobs <laughs> do too. Yeah. yeah. You know, every time I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear this conversation because every time I watch this, I'm always kind of skeeved out, but also questioning whether I should be skeeved out about this opening scene because mm-hmm. you're right. There is nothing inherently sexual about, you know, a, a woman walking around naked that, that we need to get out of our head that that is an inherently sexual thing. Mm-hmm. Right. She's taking a shower after. Gym. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But the way it is filmed with the, the, one of the things that I think Brian De Palmer does really interesting in, particularly in this film is the way that he uses music to kind of 
set a different tone than what might be happening on on screen. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the moment where it kind of gets me at the very beginning because it does – it plays like it is romanticized. Uh-huh. It plays like it is sort of Edenic or sexual. And when she, when Carrie is washing herself, it almost feels like it's something that she's doing a sexual deed in, in, mm-hmm. the, in the shower. And then, uh-huh. of course, she bleeds. And so it takes that turn from that from that moment. But the whole – so every time I watch this, I – I'm combated with like, is this very male gazy or am, am I projecting onto it? And so there's, there's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's weird. I think it is male gazy. I think you're absolutely right. But I wonder if it's, I also wonder because, you know, thinking about the, that kind of that De Palma era, not that there was even that that had been that, that term might have been invented, but maybe not unpacked to the, to the point where it is mm-hmm. right now. But it also feels like it's so, my God, it's so overdetermined, right? The kind of the camera moving through this like steamy right. locker room and girls, you know, with their knee up on a bench, kind of, you know, um, arching their backs and whatnot as they like put on their, you know, pedestrian clothes after their, after gym practice or whatever. And that music that's still so kind of soft porn mm-hmm. music. And I think. You know, if it's, if it's thought of kind of in parallel to something specifically like, um, body double, which also really is this kind of plays on the male gaze directly. Mm-hmm. It totally directly plays on the male gaze, both in real life, you know, with this kind of like, you know, voyeur and in terms of, uh, you know, per, like porn production, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, God, I would, right. you know, I would love to, I would love to talk to Brian De Palma about, you know, his take on feminism <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, the, the male gaze. Cause it, I think it absolutely is male gazy, but I, I, I also think it's like, it's so like determined and, and kind of mapped out as, as such that it feels like it, it kind of doubles in on itself. And there's a little bit of I- irony maybe, you know, but I also think that this is this this is a film that's not a parody. It's not irony. You know, again, it's like right. I just think it's a. I think it's, you know, I think it's complicated. And um, you know, having said that, I, I wouldn't. It's not a film that I would show my nine year old. You know, right? To be like, right. um, I this is a film I love. I think you should see it. You know, I mean, it would. It's like it's you know, but um, where there's other films that are maybe more with with more jump scares or more decapitations that I that I can explain to him because he knows that those, that that's not real. I mean, there's something about Carrie that's like a real, it's a, it's a real horror film, but it also really is, it's, it gets real. And the 76 um, iteration of it is complicated in terms of, um, yeah, this kind of the, who's, who's watching who it's a, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a conundrum and it's, it's something that I, that I, that I like to watch both, both sometimes as a, um, something kind of, you know, fun on a Friday night, like I'll watch Carrie again, or also something that I will watch earnestly for a conversation like this, um, which can also be a kind of a fun, like, let's just, you know, make 
like let's talk freely about what it about it or something that I've definitely you know shown in you know a screenwriting class that I teach at a, at a research one university you know we're like let's really unpack this film in terms of how it's written and, and how it's shot split yeah. di- split diopter yes all, you know <laughs> um it's complicated and it it's really is like when people ask me you know and I, I get i get asked this a lot kind of like what are some formative horror films and i always say you know rebecca hitchcock's rebecca which i dearly love um i say carrie and rosemary's baby which goddamn rosemary's baby is also very fucking problematic i mean yes. like yeah, you know yeah. if, if we you know i mean as a film that's kind of perfect, but you know, that it comes from a director who is the far, farthest thing from perfect yep. that we can talk about, you know, and, um, uh, yeah. And I could go on and on, but I also think that that that's, you know, what, what I like about being someone who is, uh, not just the maker of films, but you know, someone who watches a lot of films and, and tries to, tries to, you know, unpack my relationship with, you know, with those films. There's two things that, um, I definitely want to talk about. I want to talk about the, um, the art behind this film um, with split diopters and everything. Cause that I think the filmmaking is incredible. But another thing that, that popped in my head as I was watching this, and I was kind of curious about if this, cause you both saw it at sort of formative times of your life. This movie made me terrified about locker rooms. Ha, fuck <laughs> locker rooms. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Because as, as I, and I didn't have the words for it, but as a gay kid growing up, the idea of the locker room felt dangerous to me uh-huh. because there, you know, we, we see stuff like in Carrie where there's a lot of people, they're just in, in movies, they're just walking around naked and it, there's violence implied with what, with ha- what happens to her. And I was so terrified going into high school in particular, uh, with the locker room situation because I was like trying to understand my, my attraction to men at the same time of knowing that like this is a place full of hyper masculinity in this, in particular for, for the male locker room that like, this movie, I'm kind of wondering if it sort of like was like that kind of clue of like, this is dangerous. This is where violence can happen to you because it happened to Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was terrified of locker rooms because of this movie. I was terrified of having to go to gym class. Um, I'd already been uh, I got my boobs early, like in fifth grade, which was a scary prospect for everybody, including myself, because uh, my bully told all the boys I wear a bra. And the boys were very weird to me because I had a bra. It's like the dumbest logic of all time, like ever. But like that was my reality in fifth grade where like everyone knew I wore a bra and I was so embarrassed and I was so embarrassed Mm -hmm. of my body and like having a body. Mm -hmm. And I was made fun of a lot by other girls. So like the locker room was my worst fucking nightmare. Like nothing bad ever happened, but there was always giggles and like I was taller than everybody else and like. It was just not, and like Carrie did not make me excited for it either because no. it wasn't. I was I was terrified of having to take a shower. I never shower. Like we didn't me too. take showers. Uh-huh. Like it was uh-huh. weird. It was like no one uses the actual locker room showers in my locker room in high school. But like that uh-huh. was my worst nightmare. Was like getting having to take a shower, and I thought yeah. that was going to happen to me. I never did, but like it was a huge anxiety of mine going into gym class. Mm-hmm. Also for me, because I, I've always been overweight. And so the fact that like mm. I was going into this this place with like a lot of fit people and uh, in movies and everything I saw, the overweight kid is always the brunt of the jokes. And mm. that was my my bullying moment was mm-hmm. always in, in uh, elementary school and in junior high uh, was always my, my weight. And mm-hmm. so I was like, I'm going into a place that is not only <laughs> dangerous for queer people, even though I didn't quite know that term yet. 
but I knew there was something different, but also because of, of my appearance. And so it was like, yes, locker rooms, terrifying locker rooms, horrific. I never wanted to have to shower in front of someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I hear you so much. And I think that that, I mean, I think there could be, again, like a whole nother essay on kind of like locker room, you know, locker room films and then like locker room films, like fictional films and then actual locker room stories and mm-hmm. actual, uh, I mean, it was, it's funny, you know, the, um, you know, Facebook does like a memories, this happened, whatever, how many years ago. And I feel like it was just my, the memories that have been popping up are, um, you know, when Trump was on that bus with, um, uh, uh, it wasn't Ryan Seacrest. It was the oh, other guy who Billy was kinda, something. Yeah. Where he was like, you just grab him by the pussy. Oh, you yeah. know, that yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. sort of moment. And it, and it turned into kind of like, it's just locker room talk, you know, this kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. And then uh, like a host of actual, you know, kind of athletes posting things from locker rooms. Like there was a, a, a clip of like, and you know, this is not to say that this is anything that's kind of like, Oh, see, this is what they do, you know, but it was like, some Chicago Cubs, you know, Cuban players like dancing in the locker room or some, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And and it was just like an, it, so it's been kind of on my mind again, literally that kind of locker room, locker room talk, what happens in a locker room. And, and the I, idea that there were no adults really, I mean, the coaches didn't come in, the teachers didn't come in. It was usually kind of underground and smelled bodily, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, yeah, no, I never took a shower in high school, you know, and I was then eventually I was on the swim team and I, then we did take showers, you know, like together and it, there, but it felt like something kind of different. We were a team and we were all, you know, no one cared about the swimmers somehow. It was just like, I don't know, there was something different and we all saw each other in swimsuits at like five o'clock in the morning and we would practice. We didn't have a pool at the high school. So we practiced at like the indoor kind of YMCA pool, which was also kind of weird. And there was so many levels of weirdness to being on the swim team um, (laughs) in central Ohio, where I grew up that we were all just kind of this like band of misfits, you know, and, um, but yeah, I think that's, um, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, I've mentioned my children and I have my two older children are in high school and they're both, um, playing football this season, which is Ooh. such a strange thing for me to experience too, as like a, a football mom. Um, yeah, you, don't, you don't they, give me football mom, but I love it. Oh my God. I'm going to, I'm going to send you guys pictures of, uh, it was senior night this past Friday, you know, and, uh, my God, I mean, and my, I mean, I, they're really like, one of them is like the captain of the team and, but he's also got the heart of, um, a poet, you know, I mean, oh, oh yeah. I really like I the 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 younger one is kind of wily, not in a way that he's bullying. I think, and by any means, but in a way that is just like kind of. An, I, I feel proud. I feel proud of his wiliness as a football player. But but it's a but I get but I get curious, you know, to also think about what their experiences are like now as. Um, you know, and it, it's an all boys, you know, team. And although they announced on at, at senior night on Friday, they announced the middle school team. And there's a bunch of girls on the middle school team also, you know, and I'm just like, I mean, who, who frankly look like little baby dykes, which I totally adore, you know, <laughs> Love. and I'm just like, oh, it's, it's 
so beautiful. And, but also, you know, I just think, you know, right now maybe high school is different. I mean, you know, the, both, both of the ones who are in high school have, have a whole group of friends, you know, some of who I, who, you know, are out as, you know, non-binary, many of whom are out as bisexual or, you know, queer or whatever. I mean, it's a really, I think when I was in high school, you know, you sort of like knew who you were or you knew who who your friends were. Um, but it wasn't, we didn't have like, you know, a Demi Lovato or a who, you know, or who, or a Halsey or we could go on and on with much, much more interesting examples of people who are kind of like a little Nas Nas. and exactly, you know, who or like Billy Porter. I mean, my God, Mm. or, or, or even sort of like Harry Styles and his, you know, his fabulous, whatever, who still might be a problematic, you know, public figure. But anyway, I just think that, um, yeah, I think, you know, the locker room, that environment in that, like that space within the space, within a space of like the high school genre within a horror genre in terms of filmmaking is like, woo, you know, I mean, you could set a whole, you could set a whole super scary movie around social agendas, you know, just within a locker room. It's so weird because it, you, you could do that and you can also set a porn in it. Like it's, it's such a, <laughs> a weird area of mm-hmm. like right. mm-hmm. hypergression, hypersexuality. Uh-huh. It's, it's such a, a microcosm. It's, it's so. And intimacy, you know, I think mm-hmm. it's like, I think that what we don't do well enough and you can't do it when you're actually in that place is um, talk about, you know, that, that kind of space of adolescence, which is probably why I have made so many films about the era of adolescence, because it's just fascinating to me. It's a time of like, where you, I mean, I like to think that coming of age is a lifelong process. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of ways that we can evolve as, as, um, as humans, but there's not another time when you're both equally like super confused about the facts and super confused about where, intimacy is you know because you go from like having slumber parties with all your best friends where you're all piled on top of each other as puppies and it's not sexual it's just intimate to having it turn sexual because all of a sudden you have hormones and different nerves have different like your body is a living thing you know that was Mm -hmm. a profound that was profound your body is a living thing Um, (laughs) put that on a t-shirt but you know it's like very profound you know and and your parents, you also, I think that we all now, like I said, my mom's 90 and, you know, I still tease her sometimes. I'm just like, what were you thinking? Not talking to me about what the, the, your napkins were in your closet, you know, come on, like, what <laughs> yeah. were you doing with that or whatever? And even, you know, my own children who my oldest who's 17, you know, I mean, I can tease him a little bit, you know, about, I don't know, just the things that, you know, his sort of, bo- like he told me the other day. He was like in the shower and I had to come in to get something and he was in the shower and he like was covering up his, you know, the goods, so to Mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, I made that. Like, what is the problem? (laughs) You know? And he was like, mama. And he was so serious. He was like, mama, I have to tell you every time that you've said that for my entire life, it's the creepiest thing you say to me. (laughs) And I was like, what did I remind you that my body made your body? He was like, I don't like it. I don't like it. He really has such a good sense of humor, but somehow like that crossed a line for him that I reminded him that my body made his body. And I was like, oh, I get it. For me, it's funny, but also maybe a loving thing. Like my body made your body. I love you so much. And he is just like, 
I don't want to think about that. Like that <laughs> I came out of you. Let's just, bzz, Autumn, I am not listening. I am just not listening. I can't strike hear. that. <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's so curious. And so anyway, I just think there's like, yeah, you know, the, the layers have layers in terms of, you know, um, of adolescence and, you know, I love teen films so much and I love, you know, bloody films. I love, I love a bullying vengeance film. And I think that Carrie, you know, has, has all of that. And I, you know, and I dearly have always loved, you know, Sissy Spacek, who's still in her eighties, looks like a child on some level. Uh, she does. And I kind of love the weird provenance of someone like John Travolta. And I love, you know, that Nancy Allen had, you know, a relationship with Brian De Palma and is, has, was in Blowout and was in, you know, she was also in, maybe she, she, she's also in Dress to Kill. Mm. I don't know. It's just like, a, it's like a, it's a, it's a perfect little, problematic masterpiece of a, you know, of a film for me that just checks all of the, the boxes, both as someone who loves films and someone who makes films. Hell yeah. Yeah. Well, do we want to wrap this up and give us film a rating out of five? That sounds good to me. So Terry, how many split diopters out of five do you give Carrie? Oh, you know, I, I truly do think this movie is a masterpiece. I think from a technical level, I, we, we barely even, you know, skim the surface on the, the talent on, on screen with, or behind the screen with the, the use of split diapters, with the use of split screen, with the fact that the, the iconic shot of, of Carrie drenched in blood mm-hmm. and it is split screen. So we are forced to focus on her rage as well as the, the stuff that she is doing. The fact that that is what's happening and, and the playfulness where the, the screen moves over to the left and now there's another scene. Just, it's such a, it's such a fantastic movie that uses music in such an interesting way to kind of play against type. The, the slow motion walk up to the, the stage is like supposed to be in any other movie would be like the romantic triumph. These, she's all of that, you know, the sort of like frumpy, and I'm using that in quotations, girl becomes the, you know, the swan and, and becomes like the, 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 the homecoming queen. You know, it's, it's, it's that. And then it completely, reverses that with the 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 psycho screen you know strikes that kind of implement the the horror elements it's just this movie is it's so good and every time i watch it i'm always surprised at how good it is even though i've i've seen it i don't know a dozen times in my life i so for me this is five split diopters. Just give them to me. This, <laughs> fill this movie up with them and make a movie that is only split diopters, yeah. please, Brian De Palmer. Like, I love it. What about you, Mary Beth? Um, I also give this five split diopters out of five. I think every time I see this, I have a deeper appreciation for it and of how sad it is as I have mm. grown up and just kind of ex- more experiences of existing as a woman in the world. I feel like this movie takes mm. on even more meaning. I... And I, we didn't get to talk about my favorite scene, which was that scene walking through, like, up to the stage and the way it's this beautiful kind of, like, beautiful string scene. And then you cut to the, the pig's blood and cut back and you just know a tragedy is about to happen and you can't do anything to stop it. And it's just, I don't know. It's an incredible piece of filmmaking that I think is always surprising that, like you said, Jennifer, was written by a man and directed by a man, but seems mm. to capture the experience of being a bullied teenage girl in such an interesting way and it also deals with trauma and a weird i don't know there's just so much going on in this movie and every time i watch it i love it even more so definitely five out of five uh jennifer you have the final word well i mean i hope it goes without saying that i'm a five, <laughs> a five. I figured. 
or I'm like a six out of five, you know, or like I'm a split, you know, of it. But yeah, I think it's, um, I think that, you know, I think that it is, um, you know, again, to sort of like bring up that kind of De Palma, you know, roster, I think it feels like, it feels on the one hand, like really of that De Palma world, but also kind of singular in the way that it also treats, you know, adolescence. Mm. And, um, I think it could easily be, you know, a, f- a film that is a, a segue into a conversation around bullying or menstruation or, um, religious fanaticism or small town creep or mm. locker room creep. Or, you know, I think we could go sort of on and on or even a kind of, um, no, you know, no means no. I mean, I brought up earlier the scene with Nancy Allen and John Travolta where she kind oh, of like yeah. leans in to kiss him and then pulls away and he's frustrated and pull, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, just the kind of those dynamics. And, um, I, I think, you know, Piper Laurie in, in this film is just extraordinary as this, um, fanatical mother who, who at some point we realize that her fanaticism is also potentially trying to protect her own daughter from getting, from being a teen mother like she was, which I think is not actually in real life an uncommon kind of backfire, you know, that women who want to do this thing or parents who want to, or mentors, older adult mentors who want to protect younger people against the mistakes that they made, you know, make the mistake of, of, of um, like pushing them actually right onto the path of, you know, of, of what happened to them. I mean, this is a film that's on the one hand, like super entertaining, which was meant to be entertaining. It was nominated. There was not, there's Academy Award nominations involved. It was commercially super successful. It's deep. And the last thing that I'll say is that I remember reading an article um, by a woman named Joanna Frew, who was a, uh, she was, um, uh, she's passed away now, but she was like a f- kind of a, a media theoretician. And, and she actually wrote um, an essay about how fascinating she thought it was that Mel Gibson, fuck Mel Gibson, you know, was, um, appeared in so many of his films, like covered in blood. And she always thought that that was a kind of a feminist image because he looked like a child who had just emerged from the birth canal, which I had oh, never sort of thought about. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, having had three vaginal births, let's just put it on, put it on out there. You know, I mean, their babies are pretty gross and disgusting when they're first born. And I kind of love thinking now about that final image of Carrie at the prom. And like, it's kind of full circle. She goes from like, and I don't, no, this is my, this is maybe the question I would ask Brian, Brian De Palma, <laughs> you know, is like, was there an idea to sort of start with Carrie starting her period and then end where she seems like she's, you know, you know, she's drenched in blood as though she's like emerged from the, you know, from like the birth canal. That's a little bit maybe too, too deep, but it's, you know, how often do, do us, us, us humans, no matter how you were, born we all emerged into this world like covered in blood i mean that's actually factual and there's i don't know there's something that seems really um interesting to me you know to consider that image of carrie covered in blood but actually all images of of people in 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 horror films in particular covered in blood and to think about that as some sort of existential little ding yeah yeah five out of five for me (laughs) 
<laughs> or is that, you know, diopter, so it's actually 10? Is that? Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us to talk about Carrie. Where can our listeners find you and what do you have coming up that you can share, if anything? So- Again, I would say, you know, check out my Vimeo page. It's just under Jennifer Reader. I don't know that the, how, I, there are other Jennifer Readers in the world, but I don't think there are very, that there are any other who have a bunch of films on Vimeo. I've got also some shorts on the Criterion channel and Knives and Skin is still on Hulu, mm-hmm. I believe. It um, is. Signature Move is on Showtime, actually. Mm-hmm. VHS 94 is has just launched off Shutter. Very successfully. Very successfully. Oh, my goodness. Like the biggest premiere on Shutter of all time. And it was a New York Times, you know, critics pick and all that wacky stuff. I'm in post-production for a film called Night's End, which is a feature-length film that involves no teenage girls at all, but um, a monster. I'll say that. I was able to, Ooh. for the first time, to build a creature Ooh. in a film, which is super fun. We shot that here in Chicago over the summer. It also happens to be a Shutter original. So um, look for cool. another Shutter original um, coming coming from me. Um, and then in 2022, March of 2022, I launch into production for a uh, kind of a proper follow-up to Knives and Skin, which is a kind of a, a coming-of-age, nuanced um, shape-shifter, you know, think kind of a coming-of-age um, cat people. Oh, uh, hell yeah. And that's hell one that yeah. I, the, the Night's End I did not, I didn't write, um, but a very good friend of mine wrote and I directed, that's the one that's coming out on Shutter, pretty, you know, like that sort of maybe mid, mid, mid May through 2022. And then, yeah, Perpetrator I wrote, um, and, um, and, and will direct. And I can't, I can't say yet who's attached, but there's like this incredible, incredible cast and, um, incredible team behind it. And, uh, it's not related to the world of knives and skin. So I don't, when I say follow up, I just mean mm-hmm. that it's like, actually it's like a fully, a full genre film, you know, it just kind of like takes some of the things, some of the, some of the themes visually, even that, you know, I dealt with a knives and skin and, and, um, and, you know, amps that up, but it's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a really, I mean, from my perspective, it's a, you know, I feel really great about it. And, and it's kind of the sense of, um, you know, when I was touring around with Knives and Skin and even before, before Knives and Skin, I was always getting asked like in Q and A's, for instance, or like press conversations, you know, people would say like, God, how are, how, how is it working with all those teenage girls? And I realized that, oh, they think it's like working with a, pack of wolverines you know they <laughs> they think it's awful you know right right like because i was always like great it's awesome you know but they were asking like god how is it to work with all those teenage girls and so it took me not that long to realize like oh right we're a culture obsessed with um youth and beauty especially among young women and we fucking hate young women and mm-hmm. um you know so i wanted to make a film that was a proper genre film super entertaining lots of kind of, you know, blood, you know, enough gore, enough gore for me, or, you know, and that was really also about, um, yeah, about our obsession with youth and beauty among young women and how much we hate them and what, and what happens when a girl who you call wild and out of control as an insult, right? Like you're wild and out of control. And then she actually becomes wild and out of control. Oh, you know? cool. Yeah. Hell yeah. So anyway, so that's, yeah, that's called Perpetrator and um, I'm shooting that top of 2022. So, you know, look out for that. 
Hell yeah. Cool. And in the meantime, in the meantime, I'm just football momming it out here in you know i love your instagram page and yeah exactly all the yeah if you want to see also you can follow me on instagram under the jennifer reader and you can see updates on what i'm working on and you can see pictures of my my um my my footballers cool (laughs) so listeners you've heard from us but we want to hear from you what was your experience with carrie you can send us an email at scarred for life podcast at gmail.com or reach out to us directly on twitter I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Kaylee Treadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>